0: This is 1 Thessalonians 3 6 through 13. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Would
1: you pray with me before we start? Father, we come to you um, gathered on a Sunday morning in a rhythm that is still pretty perplexing for the kind of culture that we're in. committed to doing, at times, strange things like singing together and clapping together and, and, and these practices and rhythms that, that, that sometimes just don't fit into the culture, and yet we come to, in the way we know best, put you first, seek after you, long for you, declare your truth, receive your spirit, and we invite you to come, God. We, we, we say, as that first song was, you're welcome here. Not because you need our permission, but we long for you. Come and meet us where we are today. Come and speak through the word to our hearts, we pray. Amen. Sometimes a kind of glory lights up the mind of a man. It happens nearly to everyone. You can feel it growing or preparing like a fuse burning towards dynamite. It is a feeling in the stomach, a delight of the nerves of the forearms. The skin tastes the air, and every deep drawn breath is sweet. Its beginning has the pleasure of a great stretching yawn. It flashes in the brain, and the whole world glows outside your eyes. A man may have lived all his life in the gray, and the land and the trees of him dark and somber. The events, even the important ones, may have trooped by, faceless and pale. And then, the glory. So that a cricket song sweetens his ears, the smell of the earth rises, chanting to his nose, and dappling light under a tree blesses his eyes. Then a man pours outward a torrent of him, and yet he is not diminished." And I guess a man's importance in the world can be measured by the quality and the number of his glories. It is a lonely thing, but it relates us to the world. It is the mother of all creativeness, and it sets each man separate from all other men. Now, my accent does not do Steinbeck any favors in this process, and I confess the first time I read him, I did not read him, I listened to him, Because when I read him, I hear a South African accent in my head, and that just diminishes the experience of Steinbeck. But as best as I could, he describes something that we all go through, and you you would have uh, read this in East of Eden, and you would have experienced, hopefully, what he speaks of, these moments of transcendence, moments that light us up, that, that awaken us, that make us feel fully alive. The problem is, I believe we've now developed a culture that has made it our pursuit to experience such an aliveness, these glories, perpetually and relentlessly. And when we don't experience them, we feel something is wrong. We're no longer satisfied to exist in the ordinary. We continually compare our quality and frequency of elations with each other on social media, a kind of sensationalism that removes all sacredness from all moments. We search for moments of transcendence that perpetually leave us still Wanting more. This is what Mark Sayers says. In the absence of a story or a foundation that gives hope or meaning, life has become a never-ending request for pleasure and experience. Instead of being good, people want to feel good. And the result is this. In our day, a meaningful life is defined by the absence of pain and the abundance of pleasure. And because that's what we're taught, because we're taught that our successes and our highs and our elations and our glories are the things that we pursue, we have also defined the faithfulness of God in our lives only in the measures when we feel that way and experience those things. And so we become kind of accustomed to a way of living with our Father, with God, where He is absent in the trials, where He is not at work in us, and maybe even not faithful through the hardest times of our lives. And He's faithful only when things go well. That is, at least in some way, the resemblance of the American dream. And yet, what we do with the hardest times that we are in is in essence what defines us. What about when things don't go our way? What about the tragedies and the hardness when we live in New York City and it is just blow after blow after blow? I am almost ashamed of the way when someone asks me how I am really doing, and I am honest enough or brave enough to be honest, I would say something like this over the last eight years that we've lived here. I think I am one crisis away from disaster. That's what it feels like often to live here. Now, you've heard the story of Horatio Spafford. If you're pregnant, a great name to consider. Just putting it out there. Horatio Spafford, in 1873, uh, lost his fortune, lost everything in, the, in a crash, a financial crash uh, in... Um, Chicago, and uh, in, in an attempt to save his family, he put all his family, all his kids, wife and four kids, on a ship to Europe where they can stay with their relatives to be taken care of because he had no capacity to take care of them. And as he shipped them off, the, the ship uh, sank, and only his wife survived. And he wrote that incredible song that is now famous everywhere, when peace like a river tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bellows roll, whatever My lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. I want to speak on the faithfulness of God in the worst of times. Our text is from Thessalonians, an amazing book to read, because if you go and read the context of the story, it is important to see that Paul is speaking the most elated language. He says this one phrase in verse 8, for now we really live. For now, we are fully alive, it means. It means that we are in the best place of life. It means that things are the way they are supposed to be. It means that things are set right. And the irony of it is, we're going to look at the context now, he says it in the midst of the worst circumstances. So let's look at the context that he is brave enough to say, now we really live. His point ultimately will be this how we live in the midst of our greatest challenges and sufferings is the substantiating evidence of the faithfulness of God. So when he says, Now we really live, he's in essence uh, doing two things. He is redefining what abundant life is, because, you know, Jesus came and said, I come to give life and life abundantly. But if we're honest, sometimes we look at our lives and we go, That's not me that's not what it feels like right now. And sometimes for me, if I confess, because I like to use the pulpit as my own confessional, I believe it for you, but I don't believe it for me. So he wants to redefine what abundant life is, and then he wants to show us how we get there and how that deviates from the norm's of culture. Paul faced some great challenges. In the same book in chapter 2 verse 2 it says, "We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict." He he praises them in our teaching text. He says, "You're standing strong. We're fully alive, but we want you to know it came in the midst Of much conflict. 3 verse 7 in our text. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you and your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm. The context of his declaration of abundant life, of the fullness of life, is not absent of great challenge and hostility. There is a lot against them. If you look at all the texts that he writes, for your sake, we have experienced hardship. We face death. We are the scum of the earth. Death and destruction and shipwreck and all of these things that he goes through. And he looks at the church in Thessalonica and he goes, I see you're standing firm in the Lord and therefore we are fully alive. Now, we know that when it comes to participating in the life of God, the kingdom of God, there is no uncontested space, so this should at least make sense. It should at least make sense that if we're seeking the kingdom of God, it's not going to be a cakewalk, that it will come in the midst of trials and hardships, sometimes internally, sometimes externally, and so I am always surprised at how surprised I am at hardships, And how it makes me wobble and how it makes me doubt and how I point my finger at God and shout at him and go, God, where are you? And he's like, I'm right here. This is a good plan. The context of this particular text, when Paul came to Thessalonica in the first place, is Acts 17. And I'm not going to read the text to you, but I encourage you to go and read it. Because... When Paul arrived, he, he faced incredible opposition from uh, the governing authorities of the day. They came, when they heard Paul was there, their, uh, their declaration was basically this. They, they said, um, these men who have turned the world upside down, in other words, what they were saying was, these guys have caused chaos everywhere, now they're in our city, this is a problem. And so Paul was there to do what he is supposed to do, to preach the kingdom of God, to preach love, to show love, to display with his life the kingdom, life of God. And yet those in the city that he sat with said, "Uh uh-oh, we don't want these people here. And so he faced firstly the crisis of reputation. Now, I don't know about you, but I have some fascinating conversations with new people that I meet. I just had an evening, a whole evening with new neighbors on our floor in our, in our apartment building. Brand new. They came from, um, Germ- they are uh, German. They came from a number of different places, but ended up in New York. And so uh, I, I saw them move in. God gave us a few different connections, li- left them a bottle of wine. That was enough for them to go. Let's meet up. And so we met up and we, we hung out for the evening. And... Um, I play this game, uh, which you must forgive me about, but I, I try to really, really, really avoid telling people I'm a pastor on the first connection, right? Because there's so much context to what what the word pastor even means. What does it mean in our in our day and age? So I don't know what they believe, and so we go through this whole evening of them talking about the Lutheran Church and how they're doing bad things and. Clearly, there's some hostility towards any kind of organized religion. They have stopped giving their money to the Lutheran Church and the government, because uh, you have to, as a Lutheran in Germany, you'd have to do that. And so they kind of got ostracized from their family by saying, "We do not support organized religion." And somewhere along the evening, they go, "So what do you do?" And then uh, I confess that sometimes, uh, very strategically, not, not because of a lack of courage, but because of a, a contextual gap, I go, I'm a life coach, <laughs> or, uh, or uh, even spiritual director. That's like a, a nice thing to say in our world. It's like, oh, great, that's amazing but I told them I'm a pastor and you should have seen the look on their faces. It was like I just clubbed a baby seal in front of them. It it was like, oh, oh, uh, okay. Uh, And there was like awkward conversation and silences. And then by the end of the evening, they realized I'm not that big of a threat. And they invited me to go sailing with them sailing can you believe it in New York City maybe you do that I don't know but the reputation of faith in our city is one that's pretty contentious and sometimes it's a it's a bit of a beatdown when you go yeah I believe um, in Jesus Christ in, in in the living God and people go oh yeah you're those who hate everyone right The second thing they faced was the lack of margin. (laughs) Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks. Three weeks. In Acts 17, it says he had three Sabbaths upon which he could sit and teach and train the converts in Thessalonica about the gospel. And the whole context of this letter, he's saying, oh, Timothy has just returned to us. Why does that matter? It matters because he only had three weeks with them. And then he had to leave them alone because he got kicked out of the city. And so for his mission, for his job to secure people in the gospel, to teach them the ways of Jesus, he's just like, I had so little margin, and I worried and worried and worried because I couldn't just text or or see how it's going on social media. I, I had to wait until I sent Timothy to you, and he could come back to me, and Timothy's report was this, they are standing firm in their faith. Now, I don't know how you feel, but as a pastor, if I have to have some critical conversations with people about some really contentious ethical issues in our day that really, really matters, I feel I don't have margin to study it thoroughly enough to have a good enough argument to spend time talking about that with people. I confess that. You, I'm supposed to be doing that full time. And, and you have little margin, and, and people come at you with the, with the hardest of questions about life, about faith, about God, and I just don't envy the fact that people come pretty contentiously to us. And the honest truth is that we all in this city just lack margin, <laughs> We lack margin in our finances. We lack margin in our time. We lack margin in our energy. We lack margin in our sleep. We just don't get enough. And so Paul here, part of the conflict that he faced was the fact that he did not have enough time for the kingdom of God to take root. In his mind, he could not do enough. The next thing he faced... Um, Um, was this incredible opposition. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, uh, You know the kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of God. Of the Holy Spirit. Not only does Paul face opposition, but the church faces opposition. He says, you were very afflicted when we came to you. We came to you with good news, but in much affliction that you were in. 2 Corinthians 8, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God that He has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I get why people did not want Paul to come. Because wherever he went, just hardship followed. It was just brutal. So we face challenge, we face the crisis of reputation in our city, we face a cultural psyche, a context that, uh, again, Mark says, says, radical individualism, rampant consumerism, and rapid technological advances creates the perfect storm that he calls, uh, he actually borrows it from a French, French philosopher, hyper-reality. We live in this hyper-real world that it's really, really hard to live the way of Jesus out. It creates a perfect cultural storm where people are products, by the way, completely on the side. I know that this is the way the world works, and I'm going to step on some toes, but we were not, as human beings, designed to be brands. It's okay. I get that you've got to manage your brand and your persona and, and all of these things. Those are You can do that in a good way, but something happens to our soul when we, as humans, become brands. Back, back on track. Managing uh, our, our brand becomes a, a very important focus of our lives. People are products, even pastors. The church is as good as the pastor. That's, that, that means that we turn him into a product or her into a product. There is a relentless pursuit of feel-good experience and safety. Now, I think it's important in our culture that we create these uh, places that we, we now have come to know as safe spaces, because uh, some places are very hostile. But I also just want to warn against that, that it seems like, if you look at the pattern of the New Testament, that the gospel and, and God's faithfulness seems to thrive in not safe spaces. I don't mean, let's create abusive situations, cultures, systems. Do not quote me saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am, uh, by by persona, by personality, I I will lean towards safety. And before moving to New York, uh, everything was very safe. We lived in an amazing town in the vineyards of Cape Town, leading a church. Everything was going well. Really not much trouble, to be honest. Um, And then we felt like God speak to us about New York. And in the process, uh, there was a, a little line from the Chronicles of Narnia where, Uh, Mr. Tumnus is describing to Lucy, or Lucy speaks about the lion, Aslan, uh, as as a safe lion, and he goes, no, whoa, 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 I never said he was a safe lion. I said he was a good lion. And so for me, I actually got this tattoo on my my shoulder uh, uh, because I know my propensity to remain in the safe spaces. But the problem with that is throughout the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the gospel and faith thrives when we have to rely on the faithfulness of God. And, and uh, as much as we should fight in our world for strong a strong nation, a healthy nation, a safe nation, as much as we should thrive for that, it seems to me even now, looking across the globe, that the gospel prospers most in the most hostile of contexts. I often ask myself, why is that? And I think it's got to do with this, that in times of prosperity, we stop relying on the faithfulness of God, and we rely on our own strength. And so when you see trial and tribulation and you experience hardship and pain, you have to, to a certain extent, to the smallest extent, be able to go, I can find gratitude for this. Not because God is sadistic, not because He loves dishing out pain. That is not who God is. But because He absolutely responds to people who are deeply aware of their great need for Him. And maybe that's what we need to cultivate in the best of times in our life, is wake up day after day and remind ourselves how much we actually need Him. So Paul faced this and spoke about it in two different ways. He said that in in the midst of these hardest of trials, the personal incarnation, our life, matters. He says you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and it actually says your example rung out to the rest of the world. And it's an amazing thing when we Rely on the faithfulness of God in the toughest of trials, and how not just our message, he says, our message came to you not just with clever words, but with power. And so he says, the power of our message and the power of our life is the fact that we rely. Fully upon Jesus. And so when he says, Now we really live for you, stand firm in him, he is saying, You have stopped relying on yourself. And you know what? You couldn't even rely on me because I was kicked out three weeks into me being there. So ask yourself the kind of questions like this What would happen if Caleb was sent to the uttermost parts of the Ukraine forever and always? What would happen if your church leadership changed? What would happen if uh, the government said you can't meet in the school anymore? What would happen if, fill in the blank of the worst situation you can think of for this church, what would happen in the hardest of tragedies? Here's the good thing about this church that I've seen over the years that I've known you guys. You've been through some of the hardest things. You've been through some of the hardest things a local church can go through, and here you are, Not just sitting on a Sunday, because that's not how we measure church, but living the way of Jesus in a community that really matters. And so, like part of me preparing the sermon was going, I need to commend them. I need to commend them for holding the faith, for standing firm in Jesus in the midst of the greatest trials that churches might be facing. Thessalonians 2, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel but our own selves, your life, present in your community as you rely on the faithfulness of God and I dare say in the midst of the hardest of times becomes one of the most faithful witnesses of what and who God is. Do not discount the tough times. Do not write them off as we've got to get through them. We've just got to, we, we've got to get rid of them, but receive the gift that they may be. And then he prays for them. So he commends them for standing firm in the faith. And I want to do that to you today. Your leaders have been faithful. I, I, I think of your leaders and I think, man, what an incredible bunch of people and then he prays, he says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. That's his prayer after he commends them. So he commends them for standing firm in the faith. In other words, he commends them for relying only on Jesus, not on themselves, not on him, not on all these external support structures that are gifts and good things, relying on Jesus They're commended for that. But then he prays one thing. He says, may your love increase. He doesn't say, may your numbers increase. May you have better gatherings on a Sunday. May you do better in all these external measures that that, that define success in our culture. He goes, no, you rely on the faithfulness of God, number one, well done. Now, make sure that that overflows in love to your community. In other words, in the hardest of times, when you are rooted in Jesus and in Him alone, and you're not relying on clever church and clever people and clever strategies, but you are standing strong because of Jesus, what happens then is you can pour out your love. Uh, I'll end with this idea. Richard Ross says, as a nation, we are a three on the Enneagram. What that means is we are an achiever out and out. When we're an achiever, we read something like the Great Commission and it says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We go, gotcha, gonna do that. That's our goal. But the tone and the, 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 the emphasis that, that, that is spoken when that is our Great Commission is not go and achieve this. It's actually, hey, as you live, make sure that this is what's happening. It is such a being way of going about things. It is not a to-do list. And yet we're very easily going, i got to check that off. And if we live in that kind of way, then we'll find ourselves saying often, I don't have the margin. I just can't fit that into my life. Oh, the church is doing more stuff. I just can't. Oh, they want this from me. I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I don't know if you feel like that, but I feel like that. And every time I feel like that, I realized I have left the place of the faithfulness of God and the grace of God. And now I've stepped into my own effort. And I think I'm going to stand strong in my own effort by being able to do this. Instead, the the freedom that Paul brings here is this. The freedom is when it's not something to be achieved, but just the way you live every day when you see the guy that serves your bagel in the deli and your barista and the person at work, then you don't have to add a single thing to your life to live in the kingdom. You don't have to take on things that are too burdensome because there's no grace for them. You just have to go what Paul says, may your love overflow just where you are, with your neighbors, with your boss with those who are mean towards you, those who are hostile towards you, may then your response be that you pour out. And this is what Steinbeck says right in the beginning. When we experience that kind of glory, he says, then a man pours outward a torrent of himself and yet he is not diminished. That's grace. That's, That's what life is like when you live by grace. I can give of myself and I don't feel any less. I can love relentlessly because I am perpetually standing firm in Jesus. In other words, I am filled and therefore my life can become the source of the wellspring. Now, I'm gonna read this piece of the psalm and this is a response today. Uh, The musicians can come up now and then I'm gonna pray for us and we can come to the table. This is Psalm 116. The psalmist asks this question, What? Shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? If we can notice the faithfulness of God through all of our lives, through the hard times and the good times, then we should, in essence, come to the point where we say, Oh, God, you have been so good to me. Even in the worst of times, I can be thankful. What should I render to the Lord for his benefits to me? This is his response, and it's Startling, I will lift up my cup of salvation, and I 'll call on the name of the Lord. This is so counterintuitive because we're an achieving nation. This is so counterintuitive because when you and I go out for coffee and you or I are quick enough to get the tab or strong enough to wrestle wrestle our way there, and I pay for it, well, let me say you pay for it so that I make myself the bad person, my immediate response is this, I'll get you next time. Why is that? Because we live in a bartering system. We live in a commercial world. And this text is so non-commercial. This text says, what should I give to God for everything he's done for me? It's like, I'll ask him for more. How is that possible? Why? Because it's only in the faithfulness of God that my life will overflow anyway. And therefore, my job is not to go, let me pay back God. My job is to go, I need to root myself in the faithfulness of God in the best of times and the worst of times. That is what is going to define who this church is, what kind of testimony you will live out in Park Slope and in New York City from now on and for the next 10 years of your existence. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, our intuition, our gut responses, always, always, always. Tends to lean on our own strength. We tend to go back to what we know. Even when we start to acknowledge what we need, we often go towards a manipulative way of getting it. And that is still leaning on our own strength to get what we need. And we confess how our hearts are restless until it finds the rest that we have only when we are standing firm in you, Jesus. God, thank you that Paul shows us over and over and over that no matter how hard a time we are in, when we secure ourselves, we find it only in you. And we find it always in you. And so today, come and meet those who are in the hardest of moments, God. And secure those who will go through the hardest of times. Come and encourage them. Come and lift their heads right now, Father. If that's you, just everyone uh, would probably have their eyes closed. Just, you need grace for the hardest of times that you're in. Would you raise your hands? I want to pray for you. I want to pray for grace to be poured out. However hard a time you feel like you're in the midst of. Father, you see hearts responding and hands raised, and you see the hard times that they're going through. And it is not your objective to rescue them necessarily from those hard times, though for some it is. More than that, it is for them to find you in the hardest of times, to find grace for the moments that they're in. I pray that you give them grace right now. You say we can uh, approach your throne uh, of grace with confidence to find grace and receive mercy for our time of need. And you see those who declare right now, this morning, that it is a time of need. So come and meet with us. Pour out your grace in tangible ways, whether it's through a person, whether it's through a prophetic word, whether it's through the resources being released, whether it's be through, through just reprieve from absolute anxiety and exhaustion, whatever it is, come and meet with your people today, we pray. And come and meet us even as we come to your table to receive again, to say again how much we need you and remind ourselves again how sufficient you are. We pray this in the name of of Jesus. Amen. Church, as you come to the table, I'm going to uh, ask you to do two things. There are some carpets out here. If you feel comfortable to come just and sit or kneel before God and get get, get out of the seats and, and be a little more free in that way, uh, feel free to come. Uh, for for personal prayer over here and there'll be some leaders on the right and the left who will be willing to pray for you no matter what you're going through or celebrate with you if you just want somebody to affirm and celebrate you. But as you come to the table, I wanna ask you to do this. I wanna ask you to do something difficult. I want you to come to the table with the hardest of things that you're going through. And I want you to come with gratitude for that thing. (laughs) I want you to come and say, God, I don't know how to be grateful if you don't know, but I'm going to say, God, you put this in my life, you're allowing it, I know you're sovereign, nothing is out of your hand, nothing is out of your control, and somehow in this situation, you want to give me something. You want to give me faith, you want to give me grace, you want me to find you, you want to strengthen me. I still can't see it, but I know that ultimately I can be grateful for this thing. And then receive the bread that represents His body, broken for you, that declares today that He is sufficient and you do not need to rely on yourself or anyone else for that matter. And then drink of the cup and taste that wine that represents His body. Taste the bitterness of His life poured out so that you might have life. I know that's hard, but have faith today to come to the table with gratitude, even in the worst of times. Father, thank you that you sent your son, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. Thank you for the bread and the cup today just as symbols, reminders, echoes of your faithfulness. We pray that you meet us in this moment. Amen.